Welcome to the Bloomberg PL Podcast. I'm Paul Sweeney along with my co-host, Lisa Abramowitz. Each day we bring you the most noteworthy and useful interviews for you and your money, whether you're at the grocery store or the trading floor. Find a Bloomberg PL podcast on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts, as well as at Bloomberg.com. Well, in days like today, when you have a big sell-off in the equity markets, it's good to speak to a seasoned, grizzled veteran. And we have that in Hugh Johnson, Chairman and Chief Investment Officer of Hugh Johnson Associates, with about a billion and a half dollars under management. Hugh, it's great to chat with you today. Help us just to put what we're seeing today on the tape uh, into some context for us. Well, first of all, uh, nobody knows, including myself, what's going to be the outcome outcome for the economy of China, the economy of the U.S., and, of course, the financial markets. We have some things that can reasonably serve as a, as a guide. We, of course, have the SARS epidemic or problem that we had in 2003, and in 2014 we had Ebola. In other words, we've had this kind of thing before, and it's told us to kind of you know, don't get caught up in the panic. I think that's always a mistake. So I think don't get caught up in the panic. Maybe step back from what's going on and let the dust settle or let the market settle down before you start making any uh, investment decisions. There is a somewhat bright side of this, if you can see anything bright in this. And that is we've gone from a level, at least as I do the numbers, of being meaningfully overvalued to being, let's say, a little bit overvalued, but not as much overvalued. In other words, this could have an opportunity, but it's it's not here yet. So the main thing is don't get caught up in it and don't panic. It's not here yet. When do you decide to buy the dip? That's really a good question. I, I think you buy the dip when the, the valuations look a little bit better. You know, we started the day to put some numbers on it, uh, Lisa. As I do the numbers, 5% overvalued or above the level we should average in the current quarter. You know, this is kind of fun with numbers. We've come down to where we're still a little bit overvalued, 3.6%. Um, I think you wait a couple more days. If we got down to a level of, say, even being fairly valued or 1% uh, 1% overvalued, I'd start to buy, uh, start to buy, maybe buy some some things. Keep in mind, Wait, hold though, on. just just how much further do we have to go to get to that point? Well, you know, in, as I say, you've got to go down another three three to five percent. In my view, three to five percent. In in the uh, either you can measure it by the S and P or the Dow. If you went down that much, I think then you could probably start to start to buy. Well, what are some areas that you would be buying? Uh, you know, when this market does settle down, or if we do get that pullback you were suggesting? Well, that's great. To, that's a great question because um, I haven't been very constructive or positive on the markets. I've been saying, you know, the markets are not going to have a particularly good year, especially after what we had in 2019. So I've been trying to tell investors that what we've been doing is to add a little defense to portfolios and doing things like making sure you buy large capitalization stocks, add some defense by buying utilities and, and consumer staples. Make sure you buy some value stocks. I'm not saying load up. I'm not saying reduce your allocation to equities, but I'm saying in 2020 is going to be a lot more difficult a year. You can see that very clearly uh, than 2019. So I'm saying add a little defense to portfolios. Remember, this has been an extraordinarily long cycle. The longest uh, bull market in history, the longest expansion in history, common sense alone says, look, it, it, trees don't grow to the sky. You might add a little defense to portfolios. It's, it's not time to go into the bunkers. It's not, not time to take too much risk off the table. 
but you have to watch very closely when when you're you're a record uh, when you've got these records uh, staring you in the face. On the flip side, what would you have to see with respect to the spread of the coronavirus and the subsequent slowdown in the Chinese and other related economies? to change your view and become even more pessimistic? Yeah, that's a great question. I'm not sure what it would take, but I think it would probably be you have to watch the news, and it's going to be it's not going to be something you can easily quantify. And the news that you really want to watch is what's going on to China. You know, uh, the Chinese economy is going to slow this year, 6.1% down to 5.8%. If we got numbers or forecasts, shall we say, from sensible people, that looks like 5.5%. Uh, then we're talking about the impact of this uh, of the of the coronavirus being a lot more significant than we had previously estimated or forecast. And then we've got to reduce our forecast for the global economy, our forecast for not only China, our forecast for the U.S. Remember, China is an important export destination for the U.S. And and then we're going to bring earnings estimates for the S and P down, and that's when that's when we're going to have some real problems, I think, in the markets. I'm hoping that doesn't happen, but nevertheless, that's what you got to watch. You got to watch Watch what's going to be the impact on China, an important export destination for the U.S. Hugh, you mentioned uh, earnings were maybe a third of the way through this earnings season. Any takeaways for you so far? Yeah, it's a puzzling thing, and it's been puzzling for every earnings season we've seen for the last four or five earnings season, and that is companies are coming in with better than expected earnings. That's not as good as we saw for the third quarter that we saw in the fourth quarter. We still have 70% of the companies are uh, giving us earnings that are above expectations. But at the same time that we're getting that for the fourth quarter of 2019, earnings expectations are forecast by myself and others for 2020 keep coming down. We were at about 10%. At the start of the fourth quarter, we're now down pretty close to 8%, 8.3%. So estimates for 2020 keep coming down. And and so I'm happy about what we saw for two, uh, two, the fourth quarter. I'm not really happy about what I'm seeing lying ahead for 2020. And that makes my concerns or worries about valuation even deeper. Hugh Johnson, thank you so much for being with us. Hugh Johnson, Chairman and Chief Investment Officer of Hugh Johnson Advisors, overseeing $1.5 billion from Albany, New York. And of course, what's driving the risk-off feel is the coronavirus, which has been spreading, and some of the measures that China has taken to prevent further spread. Joining us, who has been weighing in all morning and all week last week, Drew Armstrong, team leader for U.S. Healthcare at Bloomberg. Drew, can you just bring us up to date? What is the latest in terms of the spread and the efforts to contain the virus at this point? Well, I mean, I think the biggest things we're watching right now are kind of... Uh, looking out for new global cases. We do know CDC is going to brief reporters uh, a little bit later this morning, and we may get some updates on exactly what the situation is in the U.S., where we have five confirmed cases, but uh, several dozen people who have been under observation or in isolation. You know, approaching 3,000 cases in China, the counts there continue to rise. I mean, we've seen several hundred more cases added each day. And I think the biggest thing everybody is looking at is, do things in China accelerate um, and continue to grow in a meaningful way? meaning you've got kind of sustained ongoing transmission and a lot of the lockdowns that they've been doing there aren't working, which is a possibility. Um, And do we see kind of ongoing, or sorry, do we see new transmission happening outside of China, which would really put this in a new phase? So Drew, just give us some sense of context, maybe relative to, say, uh, the SARS virus that 
many years, uh, several years ago. Um, where are we in scope? relative to that you know i think there's a lot of similarities and people do make that comparison i mean there's similar types of uh, viruses both are coronaviruses they appear to come from some kind of animal reservoir um, in china and both are respiratory illnesses that can be deadly in the the wrong type of patient you're looking at people who are maybe a little bit older maybe a little bit sicker uh, those folks are in general more vulnerable to to any type of, of illness whether it be the flu um, or one of these uh, more novel uh, novel pathogens that we've been seeing. And so, you know, you're seeing the same types of restrictions on trade, the same same types of economic worries that we're having here. SARS was a lot bigger than this was, but it's very early days. I mean, that was a, a, a long running epidemic. I think one of the things you have seen that is different from SARS is that public health authorities around the globe are increasingly sophisticated about how they respond to this. China in particular is increasingly sophisticated. China was a very different place in 2002, 2003 from where it is now. Some of the same practices um, you know, we're talking about uh, uh, these wet markets and things like that, or, you know, this coming from an animal reservoir, maybe in bats or something. Those are still the type of things you, you worry about and that do see similar. But China is a really different country than, you know, 15 or 20 years ago. Yeah, although there are uh, issues in terms of not having the right hospital beds or enough hospitals. They're building hospitals currently as we speak to try to meet the demand. Also, just some basic uh, supplies, the idea of gowns and protective equipment for the medical workers to take care of the patients. How is that kind of, I guess, illuminating issues within China that are going to make this harder to, to sort of uh, stave off even with the quarantine that's currently in place? Yeah. Anytime you have a widespread outbreak, one of the big things that you worry about is isolation and containment. This is something that public health experts are going to talk. If you have people who are contagious, you don't want them around other people. And especially when you've got a virus that is this new and has some of these scary potential uh, consequences to it, you need hospital beds and you need isolation units. When you're dealing with thousands of new cases, no city around the globe is going to have the capacity to say, hey, we need to put 3,000 people in isolation and we need to do it tomorrow. So you've got to build. And that's why they're putting together a hospital to deal with this. They did the same thing with SARS uh, during that outbreak. So some of this is saying we just need to get the facilities in place where we can do the basic fundamental public health medical work to get these cases out of the population and stop them from potentially transmitting. That is going to be made tricky by this thing because it has a long incubation period. We don't know our people with really mild symptoms spreading it around without necessarily knowing they get sick. There are some complicating factors here that I think the experts dealing with it are really still trying to get their hands on. Hey, Drew, real quickly, how did the SARS issue kind of take care of itself? Or how did that play out? Was every almost every single outbreak like this, it comes down to good public health practices. Okay. I mean, okay. you get people, so there's not like a, a, a vaccine that came out for SARS. Or vaccines something. tend to take, you know, when, yeah. when you talk about drugs, you need months or years. Often they get developed well after an outbreak has ended. You know, we have a we have an Ebola vaccine now, right. but we also started developing it um, in the beginning of the first outbreak in the 2010s, and we only just now have it. Okay. Okay. Drew Armstrong, thanks so much for that update. We'll look for the CDC uh, briefing of reporters, uh, 1130 uh, Wall Street time. Drew Armstrong, team leader for U.S. Healthcare, uh, a busy reporter as the healthcare team is as they track this uh, coronavirus. Uh, Drew uh, Armstrong from Bloomberg News joining us here in our Bloomberg Interactive Broker Studio.
we often hear the phrase, think outside the box, but how about thinking outside the building? That's what our next guest suggests that we do. Rosabeth Moss Cantor, she's the Arbuckle Professor of Business Administration uh, at the Harvard Business School, also Chair and Director of Harvard's Advanced Leadership Initiative. Uh, she joins us here on our Bloomberg Interactive Broker Studio. Rosabeth, thanks so much for joining us. We appreciate you coming here. Talk to us about your book, Think Outside the Building, How Advanced Leaders Can Change the World, One Smart Innovation at a Time. That's the title of your book. What do you? What's the key takeaway there? So if you want innovation, you can't stay stuck within today's structures, today's assumptions, today's thinking. And it, if you think about it, I mean, here we are, we're in a highly digital radio program. Um, how, I mean, the news is no longer the newspaper. Education isn't the school or the classroom. Health is not the hospital. It's a lot of stuff that goes on outside and around it. And we're fixing health by fixing nutrition, for example. Um, so if you're constrained by your job, the particular company you work for, if you're constrained by conventional thinking, you never can do anything novel or innovative. So you have to get out can you give us an example of somebody who did this and took a risk and became incredibly successful in, in their sort of innovations? Well, in many ways, many, most entrepreneurs do some of that. I mean, they see that there's something totally different possible because they see the gaps. They um, So Uber, even though it had a very checkered history in the beginning in terms of, of regulators and lots of other things, I mean, that was seeing that the conventional taxi industry was not meeting all the needs of people. You, you're out there watching on the streets, it's not hard to see. But if you're stuck within um, an existing corporation, you might not see that. And in my book, I tell the example of the former president of Trader Joe's, who has an entirely new retail concept now to feed people in food deserts in inner cities by um, using food that would otherwise be wasted. And that wasn't his first idea. It took him a long time to get out of thinking traditional grocery store um, supply chains. And now he has something that's doing very well in Boston and is going to spread around the country. I'm struck by uh, the timing of your book. It comes at a time of incredible money going into venture capital funds, incredible amounts of money going into Silicon Valley in particular with unicorns being created uh, with their valuations above a billion dollars regularly. I'm wondering when companies get big quick, does that stifle innovation because people have to stay within the building and keep it going and try to generate profits rather than foresee the next sort of disruptive trend to innovate around? It certainly makes it easier for people to get stuck if you're growing fast with one formula and if you depart from it, you might undercut that formula. But then look at Amazon, which started out with books and has managed to expand to practically everything else, including selling its own computer system. That's amazing that Amazon Web Services is the biggest deal going on the cloud. What does that have to do with selling books online? <laughs> How about some more traditional industries, whether it's automotive, automobiles or just manufacturing or, you know, kind of, uh, how are some of those companies doing as it relates to innovation? Well, so first of all, I had, there was a very interesting comment at, at a conference 
um, that I had pulled together a few years ago and had invited Mary Barra from General Motors to talk. And we were talking about the future of transportation. And she said, you know, when she was starting out in marketing, that um, the cell phone was first called the car phone. That's right. (laughs) Because that was the only place people had car phones. She said, boy, did they miss a bet. And now the car itself is a computer. The metal is the least value-added part of the car. And that's interesting. We don't even know yet how all of that's going to play out and how that car is going to talk to other cars, to the billboards, to the streets. Amazon, I want to go back to what you were saying, this idea that they've managed to innovate repeatedly to dominate a whole host of different industries. How does a company create a culture of innovation? I think in the Amazon case, there are two different kinds of cultures of innovation. One is you have a founder that wants to dominate the world. And there was a time in Silicon Valley where they all said, (laughs) total world domination. Jeff Bezos said Amazon meant it. Um, because he was evidently yeah yeah he was always envisioning things bigger Um, and so partly the culture of innovation comes from a founder who has a big dream and is not going to let go of that big dream for the trivia of operations and turn operations over to other people Elon Musk is much the same way Um, so there's another kind of culture of innovation and I talk more about that in my book which is a bottoms-up culture of innovation where you give people the sense of importance, the freedom to actually leave the building and come back with ideas. I mean, I have an example of a law firm where there was a young man in the law firm who got the law firm to take seats in a tech incubator, a law firm. And they weren't there to sell legal services. They were there to soak up a culture of innovation. And that law firm is one of the first with digital wills and other ways to use technology on routine services. So I think that if you empower the workforce and also, again, get them outside of the conventional, there's only one answer. Rosabeth, what's the role of government in terms of fostering innovation? You could say Silicon Valley, the U.S. tech business, has been so successful because the government's taken a very light hand to regulation. That was after they were successful. I mean, you know, they like to say government had nothing to do with it. They shouldn't have anything to do with it. Go away. And that was the Uber stance for a long time that got them banned in many countries around the world. But in fact, government has a big role because Silicon Valley was the result of the defense industry and defense spending. And so was um, Boston's high-tech corridor in Austin, Texas. Defense, that's government. Then there is health care which has so much government spending. Boston is now the one, yep. the healthcare life sciences capital of the world. A lot of that was federal grants. So we don't write off government. It's the regulation later, I think we might worry about. But initially, government is a great seed fund. Professor, thank you so much. Really, really interesting insights and a terrific book, Think Outside the Building, How Advanced Leaders Can Change the World One Smart Innovation at a Time. Professor Rosabeth Moss-Cantor of Harvard, uh, the Arbuckle Professor of Business Administration at Harvard Business School and also the Chair and Director of Harvard's Advanced Leadership Initiative, uh, joining us here in our interactive broker studios, a really important discussion at a time of unprecedented amount of money going into venture capital and a, and a question about how to sort of get to the 
next level when it comes to tech advancement, when it comes to countering uh, climate change, a whole host of other things. How do you set the stage to even understand uh, what might be the needed things going forward? Well, we've talked a lot about the everything rally and how yes. there just has been a melt up. Well, there hasn't been a melt up when it comes to the shares of Wells Fargo and Boeing. Boeing in particular absolutely slammed over the past 12 months. Shares down more than 10%. Kind of shocking it's not more. Wells Fargo shares uh, completing the 12-month trailing period at 2.4% of a decline, including dividends. And the question that's emerging is, how much is this a failure of corporate governance. And what does that say going forward about what it'll take to change both the, some of the issues in these companies as well as others uh, that might be facing similar issues? Richard Chambers joining us now, President and Chief Executive Officer of the Institute for Internal Auditors, the IIA. Uh, and really, I, I want to get a sense, how much was a failure in corporate governance the main driver behind both of the scandals that we saw at Boeing and Wells Fargo? Well, first of all, thank you for having me, and it's great to be back. Uh, you know, corporate governance is uh, is an, an ongoing challenge. Uh, we have the IIA, the Institute of Internal Auditors, has been surveying around this and doing a, a good bit of analysis over the last few months. And the, the issues that we see both at Wells Fargo uh, and at Boeing uh, are not surprising given uh, the kind of results that our analysis has, has disclosed. In fact, of uh, the eight guiding principles of corporate governance that we have uh, identified jointly with our uh, with our partner at the Neal Center of Corporate Governance at Tennessee University of Tennessee those eight guiding principles we surveyed around those and and corporate governance overall came out in this country at a at a barely a passing grade at a C plus um, we think there is so much yet to be done, uh, but when you start to look at these two companies in particular, there there certainly are a lot of questions about culture in the companies, and yet boards have a, a, an, an overly optimistic assessment of the culture in their organizations. Another survey we did said that boards think that the company is better managing that risk, culture, than any other risk. So. Boards are often uh, uh, surprised when these things happen because they just haven't been focused on them. It's interesting. At Davos uh, last week, we were, Bloomberg News was reporting a lot of uh, discussion and commentary around sustainability, governance, some of these issues taking uh, you know more center stage. Uh, we even had the Business Roundtable talk a little bit. I guess they announced last year that companies should focus more on sustainability than stock price. And as an old Wall Street guy, it just sounded silly to me. I mean, where do you think corporate America is in terms of balancing, you know, shareholder returns, which have always been kind of the responsibility of boards and management to maybe some of the, you know, ESG type uh, uh, metrics as well? Well, I can tell you that our study that we did, the American Corporate Governance Index uh, study that I referred to a minute ago, sustainability was the lowest grade of all areas as far as board oversight. Uh, Mirror, mirror C as an overall grade. Um, I think boards are, are maybe appropriately uh, reacting uh, to shareholder expectations. Shareholders are anxious to see immediate returns. There's a, some you know, instant gratification if you're trading in the market by a lot of people. And so boards try to be responsive to that, 
but I think they they failed their shareholders by not doing anything uh, long term, by taking any kind of view on sustainability. The implication in your results that basically there were some serious problems with corporate governance, both at Boeing and Wells Fargo, that should have left some of the issues as not a huge surprise, leads to another question, which is, are we going to see more surprises like this based on the fact that on average, companies in the U.S., are barely a passing grade, and there probably are others that have severe failures in corporate governance out there. I think it's inevitable. I think it's inevitable. Unless, unless boards begin to anticipate uh, risks that aren't clearly on the radar, risks like culture, unless they begin to anticipate it, I think we're in for a lot more of this. Okay, so give us a specific example of something that a corporate board should be doing that you often see a failure to do. Well, I think the corporate board at a minimum should be looking and having conversations with more than just the CEO and the C-suite. Uh, corporate boards should be talking to uh, the head of internal audit, uh, the head of HR, uh, to com- corporate compliance executives to get a sense of what lies beneath the surface. Because what we often see is when these culture debacles explode is the boards are, are completely amazed. They're surprised because in many cases they either hired the CEO or the CEO got them appointed. And so there's this natural level of trust there and they just can't anticipate or don't, don't foresee the kind of problems that the company finally gets itself into. Well, maybe, uh, you know, it's interesting, BlackRock recently said that sustainability is going to become a much bigger part of their investment process. Um, Do you think that might kickstart some boards to say, hey, if I want the support of a BlackRock or some of these other big investors, I got to take this thing more seriously? I think it's a good good indication of maybe a a trend that will emerge. Uh, BlackRock, I think, if I'm uh, not mistaken, said... Uh, that even where they have indexed funds, they intend to get more activist uh, or more active in uh, in voting their shares uh, around these issues of sustainability and and kind of the strength and effectiveness of corporate governance. So I do think it's a good start, but I think we have a ways to go. There's sort of a, a popular belief that during times of froth or rallies, and I don't know if you'll define this as a time of froth, but certainly there's been a very long-standing rally that shareholders overlook problems more easily because they just want the gains. Do you feel like corporate governance has deteriorated and that just in general internal auditing standards have deteriorated as shareholders become more forgiving in light of the gains that we've seen? I I do think that when everything is going well, uh, there's a tendency not to look below the surface. You see the, the water's calm, but you may not see the currents underneath. Um, and unfortunately, a lot of these things tend to build up over time. I, I think I saw where somebody observed recently, it was Hemingway, who said um, everything uh, is, is calm until it isn't. Um, and oh, no, I think it was everything is, is uh, subtle until it becomes uh, very... Uh, Jumps out and right yeah, in your face. Absolutely right, exactly. right. So just real quickly, external auditors, what, how much responsibility should they bear for some of these issues? Well, the external auditors have a have a tough job to do. I think uh, they're doing probably a lot better job than they were 20 years ago uh, in the wake of uh, Enron, WorldCom, and all the yep. counting uh, reforms. I think they're doing a better job. Uh, again, if you look, many of the of the big corporate scandals we're talking about, even the ones you referred to earlier today, weren't financial reporting frauds. They're not uh, misstatements that the yep. external auditors overlooked. 
And until uh, external auditing uh, regulations or standards require them to look beneath the surface at things like culture, at uh, what kind of uh, compliance culture, for example, a company has. Until those are required, I don't think that they're going to be the ones who identify these things. These are the things that the internal, internal auditors, auditors right. can find. Richard Chambers, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you. Uh, Richard Chambers, President and Chief Executive Officer of the Institute of Internal Auditors based down in Altamont Springs, Florida. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg PL podcast. You can subscribe and listen to interviews at Apple Podcasts or whatever podcast platform you prefer. I'm Paul Sweeney. I'm on Twitter at PT Sweeney. I'm Lisa Abramowitz. I'm on Twitter at Lisa Abramowitz1. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio.